We uh, continue on this morning with our series on on Luther. Uh, At this point, looking at uh, Luther and the rise of radicalism, uh, starting from Wittenberg, while while Luther's hiding away in the Wartburg Castle, uh, looking at Wittenberg and the the radicalism of those who were left in charge, particularly Karlstadt uh, and Zwilling and Melanchthon, more or less the reluctant follower at that point. Uh, and then today we're going to, we'll say a few more things about that, and then we'll, we'll move on, kind of expanding our horizons slowly to look at the rise of radicalism in a political uh, manner amongst Luther's uh, closest allies uh, of the lower nobility, some of the German knights that we talked about a few weeks ago. Uh, and then we'll end up today, if I move quickly, to talk about the even wider uh, rise of radicalism amongst all of the Holy Roman Empire in the, in the, peasants, the peasants' War uh, of 1524, 1525. So we'll start to talk about Luther coming back from, from hiding today. Uh, next week I'll be gone, and then the week after that uh, we'll be mostly done with the political story, and we'll, we'll talk about what Luther was doing uh, after all this time hiding in the castle, uh, and then we'll look at some aspects of his theology and his legacy that should get us right into the beginning of June, which is, I think, when Sunday school ends. So all of a sudden, it occurred to me that Sunday school is almost over. We can count the number of weeks on one hand. Uh, it was a bit of a surprise to me that we only have four or five sessions left. That's all right. It's okay if we only do the first you know, decade <laughs> of Luther's uh, ministry. It always leaves us uh, the possibility of revisiting Luther's theology and life later. Uh, in another Sunday school session. We could just do Luther every year, slowly, decade by decade. Um, and, and exactly, exactly. Uh, okay, so Luther and the rise of la- radicalism in Wittenberg. Uh, just, I've just said, Karlstadt and Zwilling were left in charge, along with Philip Melanchthon. Melanchthon was young, uh, not really the leader. Karlstadt was mostly the man in charge. And he inaugurated uh, almost for the first, I think for the first time in the Reformation in 1521, uh, a violent physical acts of iconoclasm in Wittenberg, uh, taking down statuary, smashing uh, the relic collection that belonged to Frederick the Wise, uh, removing uh, images of Christ in, in, in the churches in Wittenberg, uh, and this is a phenomenon that spread throughout Europe. That's the first kind of radicalism. Generally, I think where we left off last, last week, we were saying once Luther returns, he's mostly successful in shutting down that kind of physical iconoclasm within the Lutheran tradition. Uh, so Lutherans, uh, Lutheran churches uh, generally will have um, images uh, statuary, etc. A, a great deal of medieval piety uh, remains in, in, in Lutheran spirituality and liturgy and worship. And, and that's generally a, a difference from the Reform. Yeah, I had read somewhere, I'm not sure if it's right, that Karlstadt, while Luther was in hiding, Yes. It, it, it's true. It, it's wonderful, uh, especially when the questions anticipate the next point. Um, 
That's exactly, so that was not, the, the iconoclasm was not the only part of Karlstadt's radicalism. Um, that's one place, the physical acts of iconoclasm is one place where the reformed have some, at least, sympathy. Uh, not in the violence of it, but in the, uh, in the importance of removing such idolatrous things from, from reformed churches. So I think we left off trying to suggest why there's a difference between Luther and Calvin uh, before going on to other aspects. And I, I said something about simply counting the Ten Commandments differently uh, was one of the possible reasons. Uh, it's also true, I think, that, that Luther was just generally more conservative, wanted to move at a much slower pace uh, than Karlstadt and maybe some others uh, amongst the Reformed. Uh, but I think the best explanation is in how different reformers thought about the significance of the Reformation in redemptive history. So for Luther, I think we were talking, I was talking to someone about this right after Sunday school last week. Luther really thought that the Reformation amounted to the end of the days, the last days, the recovery of the gospel that would usher in uh, the return of Christ. And so in terms of Luther's approach to history, history was at an end as far as he was concerned. And, and slowly as you move into the Reformation in the 1520s, he becomes a, a little bit disillusioned when Christ doesn't return. He becomes quite angry uh, at, at Jews for not converting, which was, he thought, surely a sign of the end times. So a lot of Luther's anti-Semitic rhetoric certainly can't be justified, but it can at least be partially explained by the fact that he's, he's been waiting in hope for Jews to be converted, and it doesn't happen, and it doesn't happen, and he gets frustrated uh, by that. So Luther thought it was the end of the days, but the Reformed um, generally thought this is the, the continuation of history, a different understanding of the coming in the kingdom of God. Uh, and for the most part, not just a continuation Many of the Reformed thought uh, that the significance of the Reformation was like a return to the monarchy narratives in the Old Testament, that there was a kind of recapitulation of the Old Testament uh, narratives there again in, in, in their day in the 16th century. They thought they were living in the days um, by analogy like the kings of Israel, a sort of conquest of the land, of the promised land, settling of the, of the promised land. Uh, now, in terms of the tenacity that the Reformed held to that view, there's, I think, some disparity. Uh, John Knox, the Scottish Reformer, um, sort of held to the strongest version of that view. Um, I mean, he thought the Scottish uh, monarchy was almost an exact equivalent of sort of King David, uh, and, and that the reformers were like Joshua's, you know, leading the people into the promised land. And the conquest of the land meant ruthlessly eliminating idolatry. That was, the, you know, the profanity of the nations in the church needed to be rooted out. Uh, in the history of Israel, uh, idolatry continues to peek back into the history and cause problems for God's people. And so Knox held to, I mean, he really thought it was these are the days of the United Monarchy. We're living in a new theocracy. Zwingli in Zurich, uh, part of the Swiss Reformation, I think held to something like that. Um, Calvin, to a certain extent, believed that as well. 
but is much, uh, much more restrained. Calvin certainly didn't um, believe in the 16th century that Geneva should be a theocracy, um, but it's not exactly how we would uh, describe the best ideal sort of relationship between the church and, and the state. So there are different degrees. Calvin had a kind of softer version of this. In other words, uh, Zwingli and Knox held to stronger versions of it. But that's part of, of explaining the appeal then to Old Testament passages. Um, again, not to justify iconoclasm, but to help explain it from our perspective. Uh, I think we mentioned the passage in 1 Samuel, at the beginning of our sermon series, um, when the Ark of the Covenant is captured by the Philistines and taken into the, uh, to the temple uh, of the god Dagon. Every morning they come in and, and the statue of the god Dagon has fallen down in the mud and then, and then has that arms lopped off and then is beheaded. So we looked at some of those images, my computer's going into sleep mode here, um, right, of, of statues having their hands cut off, faces gouged out, um, well, in part, that was, these were inspirational passages. You can think of whole sections of, of uh, the book of Isaiah, uh, particular chapter 44, about the idols being deaf and mute uh, and blind to help explain these sorts of things. So, yeah? Um, it was part of the purifying of existing churches. So they didn't, at this point, they weren't thinking of them as sort of, well, these are Roman Catholic churches, we're going to start Protestant churches. These were, you know, the, the, the two or three churches that existed in Wittenberg. And they were the same Christians, the same buildings, but now needed to be. Oh, sure, yeah, 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 yeah. The idea of sort of leaving and starting, going off and building your own new church doesn't, doesn't pop in, um, enter history for quite some time. Yeah? Well, Luther had been excommunicated. And so those associated with Luther were sort of in a limbo state, really. Oh, yeah. Catholic with a, in terms of Roman Catholic with a big R, um, well, they were Christian churches. Part of the difficulty is we can only look at history from where we stand today with these two different, you know, religious traditions. There was just the Christian church then. The word Protestant won't even be used until 1529. Did you have the hierarchy of bishops and priests and all that? Oh, sure, yeah. And at this point in Wittenberg... Um, Protestant sympathizers or those sympathized, who sympathized with Luther, evangelicals, um, gospel believers, were slowly being replaced into church office. And so the hierarchy of the church was changing, and they were preaching, uh, and, and then members uh, in the church, the laity, were, were being convinced of, um, some of the corruptions of Rome and the need to, to root out some of these idolatrous practices. Um, but it's a somewhat fluid thing. There really aren't two camps yet in terms of Protestant and, and, and Rome. It's, it's, it's much more fluid at this point. Um, so to keep, keep moving on, uh, 
so th- th- this kind of iconoclasm is a place where, where uh, Reformed generally have some sympathies. We talked about all of that. Um, where the Reformed generally had some sympathies with Karl Stott and not with Luther. But this was not uh, the only aspect of Karl Stott's radicalism. Um, not only did he introduce iconoclasm in Wittenberg, uh, but he came to preach and teach a number of, of, of doctrines. Um, many of his teachings went beyond the pale as far as both Lutherans and, and Reformed later were concerned. Uh, some of his theological convictions, baptism would be one of them. He came to deny and reject uh, infant baptism. And that raised all sorts of warning flags uh, for Luther and for later Reformed. His theology of the Lord's Supper was quite peculiar. Uh, well, let me say just one, one or two things about it. We're already, I can tell this is already, it's a sinking ship here, five, five minutes in. Uh, we may not get as far as I'd hoped, but, but it's, it's still helpful to know something about, about Karl Stott's theology of the Lord's Supper. Uh, in light of later history that we'll come to in a week or two. He had a very peculiar view of the Lord's Supper, uh, almost unprecedented in the history of theology, which is really saying something. People have thought all sorts of crazy things uh, over and over again through history. Uh, but Karl Stott's view of the Lord's Supper seems to have been unique entirely to him. It's, uh, it's a kind of theology with, uh, with choreography, Jonathan, you'd like this. It's like theology of the Lord's Supper with hand motions. Um, all right? The controversial passage in thinking about the theology of the Lord's Supper, uh, the difficult passage to interpret is, of course, when, when, when Christ says, this is my body. Right? Well, what does is mean? Um, well, Karl Schott's interpreting of this passage with the hand motions was basically said, Jesus said, this is my body with two thumbs pointing at himself. Like, I'm standing here. This is my body. And then picked up the bread and said, do this, pointing at the bread, in remembrance of me. So there's no relationship between Jesus' statement, this is my body, and the bread. Whatever the bread is, it's sort of purely symbolic. There's certainly no presence of any kind, spiritual or otherwise, in the the Lord's Supper. Uh, A somewhat peculiar, no one has ever thought that, that Jesus said, sort of was pointing to himself, thinking, this is my body. Uh, but that was Karl Schott's view. Well, uh, for Luther, that was, I think, probably as perplexing <laughs> to him as it is to us. Uh, that doesn't seem to be a, a plausible interpretation in light of the flow of, of, of that passage. Well, that was one aspect of, of radicalism. The other, uh, just briefly, um, I think I mentioned at one point, Zwingli took off his monastic robes and started dressing like a peasant. Um, he wasn't a peasant. Um, uh, Andreas Bodenstein von Karlstadt, the VON, indicates that he was of, of some noble rank uh, in, in German. Nonetheless, he uh, gives up clerical garb and identifies himself with, with the peasants, uh, anticipating, I think, where we're going the rest of this, uh, this, this, this morning, that the gospel for, for Karlschott has radical social implications. That in his mind, uh, I should identify uh, the pastor 
uh, with the lower classes, with the sort of marginalized in society. And so he'll go a, a radical direction with that. We'll see in a minute or two. Um, the other major problem is that Karlstadt welcomes into town uh, three real troublemakers called the, the Zwickau prophets. Um, the Zwickau prophets, three self-proclaimed prophets came visiting to Wittenberg. Uh, and they were, they were, frankly, they were weird. Uh, they were a strange, strange group of prophets um, denying that the scriptures, the word of God written, should have any kind of authoritative role in the church. It was merely a dead letter, the Bible. The important thing was to have the Holy Spirit speak directly to your mind and to your heart. And so they came to Wittenberg sort of decrying these Protestant um, preachers, these evangelical preachers who were you know, reliant upon, upon the Bible, saying what you need is the Holy Spirit to directly tell you what to do. Uh, they were against the visible church. The church is a purely spiritual and invisible thing. Uh, they were against the sacraments. There's no need to participate in the Lord's Supper or baptism. You can have all that you need in terms of spiritual nourishment on your own, at home, with the Spirit speaking directly to you. These are the Zwickau prophets. Uh, and, and Zwingli, uh, sorry, Karlstadt uh, and Zwilling seem to have welcomed them, invited them into Wittenberg, and invited them to uh, set up camp, basically, have a little revival, have a little revival service, yeah, something, something like that. Um, well, eventually, Melanchthon, the young one, uh, who was a little gentler, felt out of his element, totally uh, uh, beyond him to try to rein in the Zwickau prophets in Karlstadt. And so it's when the Zwickau prophets start setting up camp preaching that Melanchthon finally goes to Frederick the Wise and says, I can't close Pandora's box here of this kind of radical, spiritual, mystical approach to, to the church. Reforms are going too far. But I'm personally not capable of, of leading the church through this. You have to bring Luther back from hiding. And so, always maintaining that degree of separation, uh, Frederick the Wise has George Spalatine, the lawyer and friend of Luther, write letters, and Luther's called back uh, from, from, from hiding uh, and, and enters back into Wittenberg, 1521, uh, sometime in the early spring, and starts preaching a whole series of sermons to sort of write, write the ship. It puts an end to iconoclasm, uh, and, and basically, by sheer strength of personality, um, reigns in the radicalism in Wittenberg. In fact, kicks Karlstadt out uh, of, of Wittenberg, and Zwilling uh, as well. Now, curious thing, Karlstadt goes and takes refuge in a particular city in Switzerland. Any, any wild guesses? Zurich. Karlstadt takes his radical brand of theology and goes to Zurich, which will forever pollute Luther's thinking about Zurich. If Karlstadt, this crazy man, goes to Zurich, there can be nothing good in Zurich. 
well, who's in Zurich? The reformer, Ulrich Zwingli. And so for the next decade, Luther uh, talks to Zwingli and looks at Zwingli, but hears only Karlstadt, right? And the, the well is basically polluted almost forever. And we'll get, in a few weeks, we'll get to the great showdown, the great meeting of Luther and Zwingli. Frederick the Wise. At this point, Frederick the Wise is, is, is surrendered may not, may not be quite the right word, but he's basically surrendered the Reformation to, to, to Luther. Um, you, he says to Luther, ha- have the best sense for how these things should go. Um, and it's also the truth that, uh, for reasons we'll come to in just a minute, uh, Frederick the Wise and most of the rulers were very wary of this kind of radicalism particularly because of the political implications, dressing like a peasant, stirring up the peasants. This will cause problems. Chris? Yeah. Through intermediaries. Yeah, we may have... I don't recall if we've talked about this or not. They're kind of to maintain deniability with the emperor. Um, and so they're very careful not to be in the same room so that no guilt by association would, would rub off on Frederick the Wise. That's true. Um, so here we have actually a, a woodcutting. There's not much to say about it. It's, it's pretty straightforward. A woodcutting of the Zwickau prophets. Um, and some iconoclasts engaged in, uh, in some iconoclastic activity here. Oh, dear heavens. Um, well, what's kind of fun about it is that Luther invents a term that sticks with us in history. Um, you may have to use your imagination here. It would probably be difficult to even guess. But if you think about them, I mean, they're removing a statue on the top of the roof there. There was maybe some kind of window that's been, been removed. Um, there's a dog down here. So they're doing all the iconoclastic things that we talked about last week. But if you look at this image, you can almost say it, they kind of look like little ants. You know, you drop a piece of apple on the ground, and pretty soon ants just start kind of swarming on top of it. Well, that's what Luther ends up calling radicals, swarmers. They're like locusts or bees or ants that just seem to be covering the church. And really, it's a sign of pestilence. It's a sign of, of, of judgment in the church. And so just as the iconoclasts are wanting to get rid of idolatrous things, Luther's wanting to get rid of iconoclasts and radicals uh, in the church and goes about it uh, pretty, pretty aggressively. Um, and here, at this point, violence really enters into... Reformation church history uh, for the first time in a pretty extreme way. So we move out from Wittenberg now uh, to the circle of Luther's friends uh, and, and quote-unquote allies, to those German uh, lesser nobility. Um, not Frederick the Wise, he's of the um, higher nobility. In terms of the, uh, the hierarchy that we, we've talked about, you know, the pyramid, we're now talking about basically the middle and lower rung of the pyramid. These two gentlemen, Ulrich von Hutten, he's the poet with his poet's 
wreath on his head, uh, and Franz von Sickingham, he's the, uh, the robber baron. He was really more of an extortionist than anything else, a kind of kidnapper, a professional kidnapper. Um, he would regularly kidnap people and then charge ransom, uh, that sort of thing, going around. He's the one who's collecting all the booty um, about town. Uh, those two gentlemen are part of uh, the lower nobility. So within the hierarchy, there's the upper nobility, princes like Frederick, the king, the emperors at the top. Um, there's upper nobility. And then lower nobility are the, are the knights, the order of knights. And then at the bottom would be the peasants. The peasants and the lower nobility are the one who, ones who tried to apply Luther's theology uh, by taking up arms, uh, by actually going out and trying to bring about something like Luther's vision of the Reformation, but radicalized uh, and, and with no distinction between sort of church and, and society. Uh, so the Knights Revolt, uh, the temptation of both Franz von Sickingham and Ulrich von Hutten was to try to align the gospel with a political uh, agenda. For them, I do think their, their Protestantism was probably genuine. Uh, but they really prioritized their first and primary conviction uh, was, was their commitment to the German lands. They were, they were nationalists. And in 1521, almost as a result of misunderstanding, stretching some of Luther's preaching, we find the very first effort in the modern world as a result of some Protestant preaching uh, to try to unify uh, the German nation uh, from 1522 and 1523. There's a kind of four-week adventure that those two knights go on to try to apply Luther's thought and create a new German, uh, a new German empire. There's a whole number of reasons that, that this happened. Um, Feudal laws were being replaced by Roman uh, revision of Roman laws. Uh, the knights were basically old-fashioned, to try to summarize uh, my notes here at this point. Um, the order of knights was becoming something kind of outdated, sort of old-fashioned. Um, in terms of military tactics and strategies, uh, the knights were becoming outdated, um, the new artillery in the form of cannons. Uh, the knights on, you know, on horseback with their armor were no match for the cannons. So in a whole host of different ways, the knights are becoming uh, a little outmoded. And, and so these two, borrowing from Luther, try to resist by forming a brotherhood uh, of Christian knights to try to take up Luther's call and, and reform the church and, and unify the nation. Uh, by 1522... Uh, von Sickingham had gathered a pretty large army uh, of knights. Once again, he basically kidnaps uh, two German noblemen from the uh, electorate uh, of, of Trier. And then, because the archbishop refuses to pay ransom, he goes marching in with his conglomerate army to begin basically a holy war on behalf of Luther, while Luther's just returned from Wittenberg. Um, they maraud around town. This is another woodcut uh, sacking 
various German cities that are held by German princes that are loyal to Rome. So you can see cannons pointed at the village. Parts of the buildings are on fire. Um, there's Franz von Sickingham up there leading his army against, uh, against the... Any, any German prince who was loyal to Rome was a, was a target for von Sickingham because they were still paying tithes and sending money to Rome. So in terms of the connection to Luther, how they're sort of misunderstanding Luther, or maybe not even misunderstanding him, well, you, you tell me. One of the things that, that Luther says in, in the address to the German nobility is that churches should no longer send tithe money to Rome because Rome is corrupt. Rome is literally being built on the backs of German peasants who are paying their tithes at church and then German princes who are sending their tithe money to Rome. And so one of the things he lays out in you know, the space of 15 or 20 pages in the address of German nobility is to basically stop the flow of money out of Germany to Rome. Well, that's one of the causes that, that the two knights take up. So they begin, uh, not only do they not send money, but they begin attacking uh, German cities who are sending money to Rome. That's part of the violence. It's hard to say that's exactly a mis, uh, you know, misinterpretation or misunderstanding of Luther, but it's one of those examples where Luther's written something in 1520, three years later, when he sees the effects of it, he's kind of surprised by what's happening, uh, and in some respects tries to, tries to take it back. Uh, well, the Peasants' Revolt is uh, pretty swiftly crushed. It really lasted only about four weeks, uh, if you can imagine. Uh, Franz von Sickingham was, is, is injured by a cannonball, uh, an artillery wound, which is, I think, perfectly symbolic of the fact that these knights are becoming outdated, outmoded. It's a cannonball in the end, the new artillery that gets them. Um, he's hounded from place to place and then finally dies, succumbs to his wounds. Ulrich von Hutten uh, goes into hiding. Where does he go? To Zurich. Zurich is, once again, the only city that will take him in. And so for Luther, um, the, the Knights' Revolt, as it was called, this four-week episode, really woke him up to the fact that some people will try to apply his theology politically in a radical way, and he becomes uh, quite wary and standoffish of the German peasants. In fact, he publishes a work um, criticizing such, uh, such misunderstandings of his theology. All right, the Peasants' War is the last uh, thing we'll talk about today briefly. Um, here's a, a little woodcut. You can see the shoe on his little flag. That's the, the boon shoe. Uh, the Peasants, wherever the Peasants organized, they usually gathered under the banner of the boon shoe. There's another uh, image here. Here they're organizing, they're all armed, so you can tell what direction this uprising is going to go. Uh, with a, it's a very long shoestring, I admit. <laughs> but, that's, but that's the Bunshu uh, flag right there. Uh, the Peasants' Revolt uh, is, is an application of Luther's theology that spreads throughout Europe. The Peasants' Revolt, the Peasants' War, 
was not so much a single event as a whole series uh, of very chaotic uprisings. Um, as far as Austria, most of uh, Germany, Switzerland, uh, even in parts of France, there were peasant uprisings. Now, the peasants were alive uh, and, and stirring for revolt before Luther ever entered the picture. But after Luther enters the picture, in the wake of his preaching, the peasants' revolt uh, is almost always explained as a kind of Protestant phenomenon. Uh, the peasants' revolt, that I'll describe in just a minute here, is a kind of iconic episode in, in Western European history that's seized on uh, for, for centuries by historians and political theorists as, as a quintessential example of uh, the lower class rising up against the upper class or against, um, against the workers rising up against those who own the means of production. Now, if any of you are, are wary of Marxist theory, communist theory, you will already recognize in those phrases, some pretty loaded terms, the workers rising up against those who own the means of production. The, the peasants' revolt, as a result of Luther's preaching, is held up by many as, a, as the quintessential example of early proto-Marxist uh, activity. Uh, Friedrich Engels, in the eight, in 1850s, uh, writes a whole history of the German peasants' war, um, heralding the peasants uh, as as wonderful example of early Marxists, uh, and and because of that, it's worth knowing something about it. That's why we we talk about the peasants' war. It's not just a kind of random thing in uh, in Reformation history. Well, why did the peasants' war uh, begin? There they are. They're starting to organize. Why did the peasants' war begin? Uh, a whole host of different reasons. Um, I already mentioned that feudal law was slowly being replaced by, by Roman law. This may seem a very trivial sort of legal point, uh, but, it's, but it's actually an interesting one. In feudal law, land was held in trust between the nobility and the peasants to be worked together separation of offices, and surely the authority lies with the nobility, but there's a sense in feudal law in which the, the land is held in trust as a sort of gift to both the noblemen and then to the peasants that work under them. Well, at this time, this is part of the early uh, advent of modernity, the rise of the modern age, the feudal system is slowly being replaced and overturned and, and Roman law that's being revised is being introduced into, into European culture. One of the things about Roman law um, is that it grants uh, to, to landowners, land is basically a, a personal private possession of an individual belonging exclusively to them. So the notion of the land being held in trust is, is slowly passing away. And uh, the nobility, the upper nobility, um, are doing everything they can to gather more and more land to themselves, to set up um, succession laws in order to keep uh, inheritance sort of within the family. And the peasants re resist this. That's one of the primary reasons. Uh, now, the reason I go into that is to say, primarily, I 
think as Christians we want to say there wasn't a, a sort of noble theological reason for the peasants to, to revolt. Primarily it was about the changing uh, structure of, of land ownership in Europe to give a kind of a secular explanation, in other words. Um, there may be questions about that later, but let me keep pressing on uh, just to finish up. It's also the case um, that the peasants seized on the radical theology of Thomas Munster. Thomas Munster had been appointed the pastor in Zwickau, the city where the Zwickau prophets were from. And Thomas Munster went preaching around Europe. He looks like a very nice, distinguished fellow there. Uh, but he was every bit as radical, if not more radical, uh, than Karlstadt. And he really preached up uh, to the peasants that Luther's theology of the freedom of the Christian meant not just the freedom of the Christian in relation to God, but the freedom of the Christian in relation to every existing social structure. Right? So when Luther talks about how in relation to God... We are, we are free, beholden to none. That kind of vertical relationship that Luther talks about uh, is sort of turned on its side. It becomes about horizontal relationships within society. Everyone is completely free and beholden to none. Munster starts preaching and slowly uh, building off of these other legal uh, transformations that are happening, the peasants rise up uh, and, and, and take arms. Um, Munzer is also one who, who thinks the Holy Spirit speaking directly to him, giving him private uh, 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 revelations. One of the more uh, unique private revelations, apparently the Holy Spirit told, uh, told Munzer that he could not be killed by cannonballs because he could catch cannonballs in his shirt sleeves. Uh, this, is, this is true. Uh, he actually convinced thousands of soldiers to rally behind him, peasants' soldiers, not well-trained soldiers, soldiers with pitchforks, that they wouldn't be killed by this new artillery uh, because he could catch the cannonballs with his shirt sleeves. Uh, and so he and his rebel army uh, take over uh, the town of Mulhausen in 1525, replace all of the city authorities with an eternal council of prophets, who are uh, being revealed to directly by the Holy Spirit, and gather a horde of about 8,000 peasants, a standing army of about 8,000, and from the base of Mulhausen begin going out, sort of marauding, t- attacking uh, German cities that are loyal to Rome. That's the peasants' revolt uh, as far as it connects to, to Luther. Well, it's violently put down by... Oh, here, this is... Parenthetically, I'm not sure why these are in here. Um, this is a, a, a stamp from, well, you can tell the date. The DDR, 1989, what's that? Communist East Germany. This is a posted stamp from, from, from the year the Berlin Wall came down and the end of the East German experiment. Uh, nonetheless, Thomas Munzer with the various cities that he and his army took over, uh, he's being celebrated as a kind of forerunner 
uh, of, of uh, the proletariat revolution. He was even on money uh, in the DDR. Um, in any case, I'm tempted to tell a story about Horton uh, taking a train. Falling, fall, this is true. Well, now I have to tell. Horton fell asleep on a train. Our distinguished professor, Pastor Horton, fell asleep on a train uh, in West Germany and woke up in East Germany. True story. Before the wall came down. Uh, it had to be basically returned um, by some, some friendly do-gooders. Only, only Professor Horton uh, could that happen. Uh, okay, well, this, is, this is basically gives you a sense of how the whole thing comes, comes crashing down. These are, these are peasants who are being put up on, on sticks, being run through, strangled, hung. That's the end of the peasants' revolt. Eventually, the army goes in to Mulhausen, um, destroys the city, and captures uh, Thomas Munzer, and they execute him. Uh, in, in May in, in 1525. Um, through it all, uh, from basically 1521 to 1525 then, there's a period of pretty extreme radicalism. People have all kinds of ideas of how to apply Luther's theology. Uh, and, they, and they actually have a go at, at, uh, at working these out in history. Most of them turn out pretty dreadfully. Uh, and by 1525, Luther's conservatism really rises to the fore. He himself um, squashes in preaching the peasants' revolt. Uh, he writes a famous tract, a kind of harsh and brutal tract by old missions, um, against, this is the title, against the murderous hordes of thieving peasants. <laughs> That's the book title uh, in 1525, telling the German princes, this is not what I intend by the Reformation. The Reformation is a recovery of the gospel not an effort to unleash sort of radical social change in Europe. And so he preaches this, uh, this the sermon that then becomes the book against the monstrous, murderous, uh, thieving peasants, and, and, and the peasants' revolt is squashed. Luther says also, as we end here, um, be merciful to the peasants, which is very easy to read out of context. It sounds very nice, Pastor Luther. What he meant by be, be merciful was... Kill them quickly. Don't let it linger, this problem. Just ruthlessly end it because, because the Reformation's at stake. Not one of Luther's maybe finer moments, um, but you can see something of the ambiguity of the Reformation in these pretty precarious years from 1521 to 1525. When we come back, uh, we'll, we'll, uh, in a week or two, we'll, we'll look just at Luther's theology uh, on its own in its own right. Um, say something about Luther's legacy as we move into Sunday school. One quick question. Well, that's a thorny question. I, I think you may be conf confusing Zurich and, and Berlin, if I'm not mistaken. But anti-Semitism was around long before Luther. And in certain respects, um, 
Luther pushes against the stream of anti-Semitism in Europe with some of his preaching and a genuine desire to see um, uh, the Jewish people come to Christ and to know their Messiah. Uh, later on, he does use rhetoric that's pretty unforgivable. And so, you know, later uh, German anti-Semites will, will, you know, quote Luther conveniently. Um, and that's a sort of unfortunate history. But it's a more complicated question. I'll try to say something about it in a week or two. We should pray, and then, and then Sunday school uh, needs to end here. Munich Olympics. Oh, right, right, the Munich Olympics. Thanks. Uh, let's pray. Uh, gracious Father, um, for your name's sake, uh, we ask you to help us. You're the God of our salvation. Um, for your name's sake, we ask you to, to forgive our sins uh, in and through Christ. Govern us, we pray, by your word and spirit. Um, sanctify your church. Hear the prayers of your people um, this Lord's day. Uh, serve us, meet our needs, uh, and fill us with gospel hope, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.